This episode of The Better Business Show is brought to you in association with KPMG, the global network of professional firms providing audit, tax and advisory services. KPMG also works with clients to help identify, understand and manage their human rights and social impact. To find out more, head to kpmg.com slash human rights. Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. And if you even asked me five years ago, would one of the big four accounting firms have a partner that had human rights in their title? (laughs) I'd laugh at you and say, you've got to be joking. That's never going to happen. There is some remarkable activity going on, some remarkable measurement going on, some remarkable conversations going on about that corporate responsibility to respect human rights. Are we there? No. Will we ever be there? I doubt it. This time we're spending some time with a man at the very heart of the business response to human rights. Richard Bowler has spent his entire career fighting the good cause for responsible business practice and remains hopeful that the tide is turning on corporate malpractice. Stay tuned. Yeah, welcome back. This is episode 59 of the Better Business Show. Thanks for tuning in and what a time for us to be coming back to you. The planet is about to implode with Donald Trump's decision to pull out of the the Paris climate deal. I find it really hard to refer to him as President Trump. Um, So Donald Trump will do. What a short-sighted fool. He has such little man syndrome. And, well, I mean, the euphoria that we all felt when that deal was struck back in late 2015, was it? Uh, was was real, was hard fought, was infectious and uh, only he could see such a deal as an assault on American jobs and American growth. Um, of course, you know, so much has been written about what has happened in the last few days but there were two pieces in the UK press that really made me made me think and I, I enjoyed reading them. One was by Jonathan Friedland uh, in Saturday's Guardian in which he basically says that Trump has so far been you know, good entertainment, you know, probably not so much if he is in fact your president, but certainly for us over in the UK, you know, we've enjoyed his tweets and the, the gifts of him shoving Montenegro's PM out of the way, all that sort of stuff has been, you know, good entertainment. But as Friedland says, you know, this is now a horror show and he writes any deal that delighted humanity as much as the Paris Accord had done. Um, they went wild. They were so happy. Trump recalled with lip curled distaste uh, could only mean the United States was getting screwed or has or as he put it, the world was glad for the simple reason that the Paris Accord put our country, the United States of America, which we all love, at a very, very big economic disadvantage. Um, so it's a really, really interesting piece. The other piece that caught my attention was... Um, uh, was the leader in the Times on Friday, which I read uh, on the plane coming back from my half-term holidays, uh, and it was really t- to counter it. It said that you know Trump's decision is neither here nor there, and that the world needs uh, business leadership, it needs innovation, it needs technology. Uh, forget you know bu- bureaucrats and policy, and, and actually whether Trump decides to pull out of this uh, or not is is neither here nor there. So it's another sort of interesting counterpoint. I agree with both viewpoints. Trump's refusal. Uh, to accept the seriousness of climate change is dangerous. Uh, but, you know, it's the sort of move that will make businesses, progressive political leaders, enlightened individuals, you know, rally like they've never done so before and make this, uh, make sure this man is shown up for the utter dinosaur that he is. Um, so anyway, before we get into today's show, please don't forget to check out the full roster 
of past episodes, uh, sustainable business storytelling at its best. Have a look at the website, betterbusiness.show. Um, and I haven't done one of these shout outs for a while, but summer is officially here, in case you hadn't noticed. And that means you need a, a wardrobe refresh, you need a t shirt or a vest, maybe. Head over to the Better Business Show t shirt shop, please. Uh, www.betterbusinessshow.tmill.co.uk. That's T E M I L L.co.uk. Uh, we've got a cracking range of different designs, mostly with great quote, uh, quotes from some of the, the most enlightened environmental thinkers out there. And let's face it, in the age of Trump, this is exactly what you need emblazoned on your chest this summer to show solidarity with the planet. Uh, so go do that. Support the show. The behaviour of the Makovsky brothers, who were sentenced earlier this year to six years in prison for trafficking young men from Poland to work in a sports direct warehouse, has been described by union bosses as like something out of a Dickens novel. Erwin and Christian lured vulnerable poles to the high street retailer's Shirebrook warehouse, where they were paid below the legal minimum and faced full body searches every morning before coming into work. Of course, the conviction is good news and proof that the UK's Modern Slavery Act, which came into force in March 2015, to tackle forced labour and poor recruitment practices is working. However, despite ongoing spotlighting of UK businesses like Sports Direct, driven by good old-fashioned investigative journalism, these early convictions have also thrown a light on the effectiveness of the legislation, the way it's being used to tackle the more serious instances of human rights abuse, both in the UK and around the world, particularly in the apparel sector. The introduction of the Act was met with warm reception by human rights campaigners. For the first time, the issue of worker well-being had reached the boardroom. More than 12,000 chief executives at companies turning over more than 36 million must now sign off on modern slavery statements, proving they're doing meaningful due diligence to find risks and do something about eradicating forced labour and trafficking from their own operations and supply chains. But according to the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre, the Act is falling short, particularly when it comes to how companies report. And the organisation's analysis of the first FTSE 100 companies to report under the Act called for improvements across the board, with only Marks and Spencers and SAB Miller singled out for producing detailed statements that disclosed robust measures. While the regulatory landscape in the US has certainly tightened with the closing of a loophole in the 1930 tariff act barring goods made by convict forced or indentured labor uncertainty remains over whether the new trump administration will turn away from corporate regulation of any sort so perhaps it's too early to make a full assessment as to the effectiveness of things like the modern slavery act Uh, but it's certainly safe to say that the issue of human rights is one that no company wants to be embroiled in as well as one subject that every company is most certainly exposed and at risk of and that's why we decided to dedicate the bulk of this episode to the subject and we're super excited to have grabbed Richard Burler to appear on the show. In 2015, KPMG Australia raised eyebrows in the business world when it bought a specialist human rights consultancy called Banara. It was not a move many people expected from an accounting and business consulting firm, but it was a wise move, as we're about to find out. Two years on from that acquisition, Richard has firmly established Human Rights Advisory as a service that KPMG member firms now provide to clients around the world. 
an absolute gold mine of information, insight and knowledge on the subject of human rights and the business response to it. Here's Richard. So Richard, thank you for joining us here on The Better Business Show. And we're going to be delving into the rather weighty issue of, of human rights today, something that impacts on and affects you know, every business, everywhere, whether we like it or not. And it's great to have you on the show as somebody that's been embedded into this this sphere, I guess, for, for many years and, and really has a good insight into the, the challenges that business face when it comes to protecting human rights, particularly along complex supply chains. And as somebody that has been working with businesses to find some of the answers. Um, so before we jump into all this, why don't you start, Richard? Tell us about yourself. Give us a, a brief kind of potted career history, if you will. Where did your interest in all this stuff begin? No, oh, brief. And you want me to be brief with that, <laughs> with that opening question? Um, it really does go back more than 20 years ago. So for me, uh, it was working for an international human rights organization based in The Hague. And the, uh, it, was a, it was like an alternative United Nations. It was called the UNPO. Right. Uh, and this was literally the early 1990s. So, you know, we, we had the fall of that whole East-West divide, including the Berlin Wall, 1989. And, and all of a sudden, all these peoples and nations emerged from within these nation states. Right. And I found myself working, you know, with um, the Kosovans, um, the Chechens, you know, the Bougainvillians in terms of, you know, the, the, this southern hemisphere. And there was, you know, this great copper mine that was creating enormous conflict within that community. So, so fast forward then, uh, you establish your own kind of a consultancy advisory practice, Banara, to specifically address these issues. What, what, when did that decision come about? Why did you do that? Well, there was kind of a step. I sort of went from, I guess, throwing rocks at corporates in terms of being an anti-corporate campaigner. And then, then my, mm. the first corporation I worked for was The Body Shop. Right, so I worked okay. for Anita Roddick for, for, for four years in, and uh, you know, I, I was living in Brighton and, and spending half my time between you know, London and then Little Hampton. Right, uh, right. And Anita used to, yeah, she used to characterise Little Hampton you know, for the uh, newly wed and the nearly dead. Um, <laughs> I don't think I was either of those. Uh, but that's where she had her head office. And uh, John Morrison at the Institute for uh, Human Rights and Business I mean, he's told me that in his view, that was probably the first dedicated corporate role that right. had human rights in its title. So that, that was back in 1995 that I took up the human rights campaigner role in global public affairs at the body shop. Right. Did that for four years, uh, continued my Agoni campaign after Ken Weaver's execution. Um, we worked on the Agoni 20 uh, took on other issues. Uh, it was the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights where I had the opportunity to run Body Shop. You know, I took Body Shops in 30 countries and was able to put Amnesty International Human Rights Defender campaigns into, you know, Body Shops. And it was just remarkable what you can do, you know, with a with a global platform and the commitment of a CEO like Anita Roddick. Yeah. And then. And, and then I came back to Australia and set up my own consultancy. So, so I guess I went from working against company, working in a company, and then working with companies on, on business and human rights. Yeah, which the NGO community seems to have kind of come to terms with now, doesn't it, a bit more? You, you tend to see a lot more kind of collaboration and, and partnership working rather than just the traditional bashing of corporates, don't you? You do. Uh, but I'm always the first one to say everyone's got a role. And I absolutely think there is a role for those NGOs that say, you know what, we're not going to partner. 
We're not yeah. about collaborating. We're about telegraphing the future and future societal expectations. And I think that's one of the big challenges for businesses that engage with you know, business and human, you know, that corporate responsibility to respect human rights, mm. is, is expectations are changing rapidly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, you do need to be nimble. You know, you do need to be thinking about the future uh, because then you can invest in being prepared for that future rather than having you know, yourself suddenly on the front pages and going, goodness me, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll come back to that that notion in in a sec. But set set. Give us some context. What are the kind of key human rights issues that that businesses face right now? When it comes to business and human rights, I think the resource sector, mining and oil and gas, there's a kind of logic, uh, and certainly. When you look at the work that the UN did in the early days uh, around certainly the Ruggie Magnate and um, some of the early investigations, the UN was kind of very articulate and very clear that it is the resource sector that clearly has the most direct impact on people's human rights, and that's particularly in terms of host communities. Because if you think about access to resource, it's generally about people or you know cute furry animals. If you're in you know, you know biodiverse ecosystems. And that's your key challenge to getting access to your resources is getting access to land and people generally live on that land and they generally have a traditional land use right. that needs to find, you know, that if you're going to access that resource, other land needs to be found for those people to do it or they need to transition into a completely different uh, livelihood. And, and that 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 is a very challenging context um, for you know, people to do that or any companies or governments and companies to do that in a right, respectful way. Resettlement's challenging, very challenging. And I think the other major challenge is around security. So if you're going to develop resources in the context of poor rule of law or context where conflict is actually underway because you know there's a civil war going on or there's a major armed insurgency, uh, as soon as you've got to operate behind private or with the support of public security. Mm. You know, that's why you know, we talk about the UN guiding principles came out in 2011. You know, my career in many ways, um, uh, you know, being over 20 years working on business and human rights, uh, I, I've almost kind of may experienced all of those modern milestones. And, and, and that's where I, you know, I see a whole range of activity that actually happened before the rugby team started working on the guiding principles. Right. And that's the voluntary principles on security and human rights that you know came out in the, in the late 1990s. And you think about also um, you know coffee and arm and the global compact. Uh, there's been a range of initiatives and activities, uh, processes, standards, guidance uh, that's well and truly laid the groundwork for um, you know what is arguably the stand the, you know, the seminal piece of work around business and human rights, and that is the, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Yeah, and despite all that activity, we're here and we're still we're still talking about it. And I, I wonder, you know, given our collective knowledge that that modern slavery, for instance, exists and is, mm. you know fairly widespread, in, particularly in certain industries, why haven't we sorted this out yet? Is it is it this is about just too many companies just turning a blind eye because they're quite happy to to have people squeezed along that chain because you know things are going to come to the market cheaper? Is it is it as simple as that? Oh, look, I, I have a twenty year perspective, and I think it's remarkable the you know the trajectory that we've come on in terms of the you know. 
businesses respecting human rights. And if you'd even asked me five years ago, would one of the big four accounting firms have a partner that had human rights in their title? I'd laugh at you and say, you've got to be joking. That's never going to happen. And that, to me, is what's really interesting at the moment is the corporate responsibility to respect human rights. We are at a crossroads, which is about mainstream. You think about March 13, you you had 98 companies benchmarked in the corporate human rights benchmark. Yeah. And that 98, the ambition is to take that to the top 500 of the world's listed companies. There is some remarkable activity going on, some remarkable measurement going on, some remarkable conversations going on about that corporate responsibility to respect human rights. Now, I'm seeing 20 years of extraordinary progress. Are we there? No. Will we ever be there? I doubt it. Uh, but we've made extraordinary progress, but it's certainly not been fast enough and it's certainly not been quick enough. But, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. And yeah. you know, if I can offer up some small signs, you know, the number of companies that uh, have, you know, clearly committed to not just the Global Compact, but the UN Guiding Principles, the amount of practical lessons that are being shared, uh, it, it is extraordinary. Uh, it's still only touching, I'd say, a relatively small number. If you yeah. think about the number of companies signed up to the Global Compact, we are still only talking about 8,500, but it's 8,500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what does it take to, for a company to, to sort of take a stand? Is this about, an, you know, a, a CEO just not, you know, desperately not wanting to be tainted with, with any of this stuff and, and really taking a stand? Does it have to come from the top there? It, it, look, it, what does it take? It, it does generally take some sort of disaster. Um, right. We did. We didn't know, or we didn't. You know, it is Urana Plaza. Mm. You know, when you have a disaster like that, um, and CEOs and other decision makers suddenly find out that you know they've been sourcing from a place that they just had no idea, and all of a sudden, you know, there's questions about what is their responsibility in yeah. relation to having decided, even if it wasn't transparent to them, their business decided to source from uh, Rana Plaza. You know, where, you know, largely that, that female workforce, you know, the day before said, no, you know, this isn't safe. We shouldn't be working in this mm. building. Mm. And they were threatened and coerced to go to their deaths into that building. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think any, you know, any business person with a full knowledge would make a conscious decision in a major, you know, branded, uh, consumer facing, a company would make a conscious decision to do that. Uh, and I think that transparency is what's needed. And I think it is those shocks that do drive companies to reconsider. I know we, this is the way we've always done things, but is that is that still, ex, you know, is that acceptable? Or I didn't know that's the way we did things. Yeah. I don't agree with that. I don't you know, that doesn't align with, with what I think is, is good practice. So I think that's the key driver. Mm. However, you know, I, I've still got plenty of examples as recently as last week where you know, I, I went in to have a conversation with the CEO and a chief operating officer. Um, you know, this is a consumer goods company. They're growing rapidly globally. And uh, and he was the one, you know, we're building for them a supply chain uh, management process that will, you know, reduce the worst risks in terms of what's a rapidly changing supply chain globally for them. Yeah. And it was the CEO who turned to me and said, I, I think we should join the Global Compact. What do you think? And I almost fell off my chair because they're not facing a major disaster. <laughs> what they are doing is is growing globally. 
Um, they want to penetrate the European market. They absolutely recognise that being seen to be responsible is key to gaining better quality and larger global clients in terms of the products that they supply. And that's what's driving that. He's actually saying, I want to join the Global Compact because I see it as my ticket, as my passport to joining a value chain of like-minded companies. And I see that as being more valuable to my business. Now, that to me is getting really exciting when when you get those sort of stories. Yeah, 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 that's a real shift. So just before Christmas, uh, you guys put out a really useful report called Addressing Human Rights in Business Executive Perspectives, which is, you know, full of great examples of, of you know, which companies are doing what. What, what were the highlights of, for you of, of doing that piece of, piece of work? Good, good question. The highlights, I'd probably say what was the, the sort of insights for me that were new and uh, uh, definitely a, a humility about where we're at. So, look, you know, yes, you get that sense of excitement and enthusiasm from me in terms of my relative perspective of the last 20 years, but it's still sobering how far we've got to go, mm. how many times, you, you know, you, you pick up the newspaper in the morning or, you, you know, you, you get it on your phone and you're looking at it and you go, here's stories where clearly corporate decisions, corporate behaviour has led to people's human rights being violated. So, uh, you know, we, we are seeing still far too many stories like that. Mm. And, and I think that, for me, was probably one of the key takeaways was also the humility from those that we largely spoke to who said, you know, using this human rights lens is a challenge. Uh, it is not straightforward. And certainly in terms of then how we see our business differently, how we manage that, that's not straightforward either. That's a that is a process. You know, that is a lot of education. So that was probably the second insight: is remembering that human rights language um, still needs to be introduced to people. Yeah. You know, I'm 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 never going to. And I hear a lot of that debate around. I oh, can't. We aren't we just talking about things like health and safety and um, people's working conditions? Don't we just use that language? We don't have to use the words human rights. Absolutely disagree with that. The whole value of using the terminology human rights is that it relates to a global framework of what's been globally accepted by global societies, what we should all be able to enjoy to realise our potential. Yeah. And and there's something quite there's something quite significant about talking about those things as impacts on people's rights uh, as a business because it shifts us from being a conversation about who's a responsible business and who isn't a responsible business to, you know, I'll, I'll have a corporate social responsibility program, you know, because I'm committed to doing the right thing by the community. Well, yeah. now I'm committed to doing these things because I recognise that that's actually people's rights and if I did it differently, I may be violating their rights. There's yeah. a power shift in using the human rights language, which is very helpful for any business that really truly is committed to comprehensively understanding its risks. Yeah. And that's where, you know, when you ask insights as well, for me, one of the most powerful shifts that, uh, that the UN guiding principles offers business is taking the two perspectives. You know, historically enterprise risk management has all been about being company centric. What are yeah. the risks to our business? And the UN guiding principles clearly ask you to 
add an additional perspective, and that is what are the risks to people and their human rights, those rights holders, what are the risks to them from our company's activities and in this particular context? And that, to me, is the most powerful value add. Mm. Anyone who asks the question, you know, what will, hang on, what's the value to me or my business in terms of the corporate responsibility to respect human rights, it's that that very comprehensive understanding of the risks to your business by adding that additional lens of understanding the risks to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're getting a bit of an insight just just listening to you here, Richard, but when when an organisation approaches you and asks for help in in addressing business Mm. human rights, what what is it that you can do for them? What's your approach? Because I guess none of of this, you know, what you do is is an off-the-shelf kind of offering because every business is completely different in terms of, you know, structure and the the value chain, the way it thinks about risk. But what's your approach when when approached by companies? Well, I think we touched on that already, and that's the commitment. I mean, and this comes from the guiding principles. It's it's well-structured, and and in that sense, I I think you'll find most advisors or consultants, you know, will be drawing on the guiding principles. That's, I think, been part of the power uh, of them is that they were developed with, you know, a traditional business's approach to management. So you've got that absolutely first part is the commitment. Yeah. And... uh, I'll generally push to see that as high as possible. And and recent drivers like the Modern Slavery Act in the UK, and that's now driven a parliamentary inquiry here in Australia into whether there should be an Australian equivalent. We've seen the French come out with a a duty of care uh, response in terms of business and human rights as well. Now, that's really helpful to engage at that top leadership level and and get a good gauge of commitment. Uh, And then it is a process and having some uh, sort of systematic process of identifying uh, your human rights impacts and risks. You know, what are those most salient human rights risks associated with your business and responding to them? You know, I I kind of put it quite simply, but, you know, in response, you know, more technically, it's about embedding, it's about monitoring, it's about reporting. Uh, And then finally, look, when things go wrong, uh, you know, how do you fix it? Uh, and yeah. that's that remediation, you know, more technically. So for me, it's a, it's a simple, you know, what's, your, you know, what's that level of commitment and question that, challenge that, make sure that's as high and as broad and as deep as it needs to be, yeah. and then have that systematic process of identifying and responding. And finally, when all of that doesn't work, how do you fix things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I love- that's that's that plain that's the plain English version. <laughs> no, I, li- but, I like that. But I have to say that, yeah, that sort of reflect. I mean, that absolutely reflects in terms of you know the work that we do to you know to to, to help our clients. Yeah. But yeah, look, I, I think still underlying, or no, overlaying, I would say all of our work is the education piece. Right. There is not a day where I do not have a conversation which is actually about. Uh, educating on human rights and educating yeah. on the links between respect for human rights, corporate activity, and, and human rights violations and abuses. And, and does that frustrate you at, at this point in the game? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you, do you find yourself getting frustrated that you're still educating? No, <laughs> I'm flattered. <laughs> and you know what? I, and I'm going to tell you what I love even more is that I can do the, the, the level at which I can now do that. I mean, as silly as it sounds, but going and run my own boutique, you know, as, as Banara for, for for just over ten years, you know, out of Sydney, Australia. 
to, to now be a you know, KPMG partner in you know, a human rights and social impact is my title, and I've got that global head title for, for the network that we've set up globally. Uh, but I don't say anything different. Uh, but the access that I now have, you know, I, I'm able, you know, I, I get introduced to, you know, CEOs and boards. Um, you know, that is now standard. And I say the same thing. Uh, whereas before, you know, it was around how do I get in there? You know, how, how do I work with the sustainability manager? How do I work with someone lower down yeah. um, to get access up there to be able to have that education or that awareness raising conversation around? This agenda is actually useful and valuable for your business going forward. It's yeah. going to help you more comprehensively understand you know, the risks to your business through using that additional lens. And that helps you navigate what's increasingly complex social context, you know, where we, we are. You know, there's a fundamental questions about the relationship between business and society. And I think the human rights agenda has got a lot to offer in helping businesses navigate those increasing questions around, have you got a social license? Have you got a social contract? You know, and they're the bigger questions that you know, Trump has certainly uh, brought up the agenda and you know, the UK's decision around Brexit, you know, the role of corporations, corporate power. Uh, you know, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing those kind of alternative rights um, party leaders use that anti-corporate um, uh, narrative to, uh, to, 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 you know, to collect followers, uh, which is kind of hugely ironic because, you know, that that's one that I'm used to hearing. That rhetoric is one that I'm used to hearing from the far left. You know, from yeah. as recently as five, ten years ago. So he, he, we've got both sides politics clearly questioning uh, and using the questioning of business's role in society um, uh, to tap into a broader discontent, frankly, around, you know, I, I think, sharing of benefits. You know, have we, have we got an equitable share of the negative impacts and then the positive benefits uh, mm. in terms of corp- corporate activity in society? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what, are you hopeful, Richard, that we'll, we'll, we'll get to where you want to get to? Oh, look, uh, I'm I'm very hopeful that uh, my legacy <laughs> will will be, you know, a, a global network uh, of uh, business and human rights practitioners throughout KPMG, and and that will have its own ripple effect. Uh, to me, we're we're on that. You know, we're well. We've taken that good first step to mainstream the corporate responsibility to respect human rights and. The reason I'm hopeful is I can, when the due diligence was done on me and I had a very senior partner interview me uh, from KPMG Australia and he said, Richard, oh, look, I, I'm looking at what your business does, you know, and you do this human rights stuff and respect human rights. We're not really an NGO. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I, I'm not considering selling my consultancy to KPMG because I think I think KPMG is an NGO. Uh, I've got this personal ambition to see the corporate responsibility to respect human rights mainstreamed. The day that KPMG clients are prepared to pay the same dollar for business and human rights advice that they pay for tax advice or that they pay for audit services or that they pay for any other mainstream business or management consulting service uh, is the day that I know I've got the evidence that we are being successful in mainstreaming. 
uh, and and that to me is look, that to me is uh, is why I'm hopeful because they did buy my business. Here I am talking to you, you know, as a KPMG partner with Human Rights in their title. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, look, Richard, it's been fascinating chatting to you, and uh, you know, it's a subject I find myself writing about more and more. And it's an issue that you know it's not going to go away anytime soon, and. And but it's interesting it's good, listening it's to. Good, isn't it, Tom? It's well, good. It, 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 it is in some ways, I guess. But it's it's interesting just having an insight into to what you're witnessing and that that kind of business response and a slightly you know more proactive kind of nature of of the CEO response. So it's really interesting to hear. So we encourage all our listeners to go out certainly to look at the the KPMG report on addressing human rights. Uh, we'll put the link in today's show notes uh, and do check out Richard on on Twitter. You're on Twitter, Richard, and LinkedIn, all those usual places that people can find you absolutely and, and always open for a debate and questions i love questions because uh you know we need to be uh we need to be constantly thinking about our answers because um today's answer isn't good enough for tomorrow absolutely well, richard thanks for your time and it's been lovely talking to you good luck with it all thanks Tom. Richard Burler there, KPMG's Head of Specialist Human Rights and Social Impact Group, really driving the agenda forward with vim and vigour and full of hope and positivity. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Do check out the KPMG report we referenced during that chat. Uh, just head over to kpmg.com slash human rights. We'll put the link in today's show notes that accompany this episode. So do check those out. Uh, and as we said in the chat there, you can find Richard on Twitter and LinkedIn. So, you know, get in touch with him, have a chat. Uh, if you think he and the team at KPMG uh, might be able to help you kickstart that all-important response to one of today's, let's face it, most pressing corporate issues. As ever, please do let me know what you think of the show. Get in touch. And as I sporadically say to you, if there's a business you'd like to see featured in these pages, then then give me a shout. Send me an email, tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk or tweet me at tomidle. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, but that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back again on Friday for our Friday Five. Uh, so don't miss that. But until next time, goodbye. <laughs>